This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Do you know that song? Yeah, you do. Unless you've been living under a rock since 1989. That's when The Simpsons first came into their own with their half-hour show. Prior to that, they'd been pretty minor figures on The Tracy Ellman Show, which is now long defunct. Now, I don't think I need to, or in fact can, describe just how much The Simpsons have become part of American culture. But something that might surprise you is just how much it's become part of academic culture. In fact, The Simpsons has found itself the subject of such weighty tomes as The Simpsons and Philosophy, The Doe of Homer, The Gospel According to The Simpsons, and The Simpsons and Society, serious academic books all. Of course, that's in addition to titles like The Simpsons' Rainy Day Fun Book, but still, there seems to be something about The Simpsons that invites a deeper inquiry than, say, Family Guy. One of the more recent inquiries spawned by The Simpsons is by my guest today on Fordham Conversations. Jonathan Gray is an assistant professor of communication and media studies at Fordham University, and his book is Watching with The Simpsons, Television, Parody, and Intertextuality. It's out now from Rutledge Press. I talked to Gray recently about his book and about why he thinks we're just so fascinated with The Simpsons. Jonathan Gray, welcome. Thank you. So why write about The Simpsons? I would be lying if I didn't admit that a large part of it was because I love The Simpsons um, and watch huge amounts of it. And so I think everyone who is a television studies academic, we all play this game of trying to come up with smart reasons for why we love the things that we do. And so The Simpsons was was part of the reason there. I, I think a large part of it was I, I was often amazed at how The Simpsons would talk about things that you just wouldn't hear other television programs talk about so that like it would make fun of advertising and do so in a way that really called advertising to task. You have the the character of Kent Brockman, who's the newsman, um, and he makes fun of the way in which the news was told. And I really think that The Simpsons not only was an important program in and of itself, but it spawned a whole lot of other programs so that, you know, first South Park, King of the Hill. But now if you look at look to The Daily Show or The Colbert Report, what you're finding is is programs that I, I think were made possible by the kind of tone that The Simpsons set. And so I, I saw The Simpsons as not only important in and of itself, but something that, that sort of spawned um, imitators. And, and so it was sort of, you know, the, the start of something new in television. We interrupt this cartoon for a special report. <gasps> Someone found my keys! Kent Brockman at the Action News Desk. A massive tanker has run aground on the central coastline, spilling millions of gallons of oil on Baby Seal Beach. Oh, no. It'll be okay, honey. There's lots more oil where that came from. Who is responsible for The Simpsons? And does that have anything to do with why the show's been so subversive? Uh... Well, I mean, obviously, you've sort of at the, the head of it, you've got Matt Groening, uh, who was known for his, his earlier work with uh, Life is Hell, a, a cartoon that which was often subversive in many things. Like he had a, a spin-off book of that called School is Hell, where you talk about the uh, education system and all the things that were going wrong with it. And that sort of gave birth to Springfield Elementary and the character that is Bart. But a lot of the writers uh, work uh, have are Harvard grads and have worked for the sort of Harvard satirical press. And I think where the, and where they come from and why they're allowed to say the things they are uh, partly is because of a, a sort of neat little arrangement that um, James Brooks, one of the producers of the show, was able to uh, arrange, which is because he was such a known name, because of his involvement, he was able to. Uh, get a no-notes policy, which means that Fox officially can't tell The Simpsons that they need to change things. 
And whereas in the first few seasons of The Simpsons, I don't think you see too much of its subversiveness. It's just sort of playful and funny. By about the third or fourth season, they were so popular, they were doing so well, they were making so much money that they had bought themselves the right to start making some of these critical comments. And I think they're now in a position where even if Fox wanted to tell them to shut up, they wouldn't because it makes so much money for Fox. So they're sort of backed into a corner of allowing these people to do what they want to do. Why is it so popular? It seems like there are so many weird jokes, there are so many parody elements in it that a lot of people might not find funny, but yet everyone watches The Simpsons. Well, I think it's one in sort of very few television programs have offered themselves to so many viewers. I I think of perhaps a, a progenitor to this would be The Muppet Show, in that one of the things that you have with The Muppet Show is that it's something that kids can watch and they love The Muppets and The Muppets have all these sort of crazy antics and even little kids can just get the fact that, you know, The Muppets burp or they do sort of, you know, there's bodily humor and and the very sort of simple slapstick humor. You then move up to older kids and they start to realize that some of the jokes are actually, you know, a little intelligent. Then you go to their adults and they're realizing that some of these, you know, some of the things that are happening in the the Muppet show are uh, plays with things that happen in movies and it's parodic and it's satiric. And I think The Simpsons works in a very similar way that if you want to engage with it purely as a sort of mindless cartoon you can and it's it's well drawn it's it's amusing but then it has this whole extra level i think it also came at a point of time where a lot of of people who were sort of you know 30 or 40 something who had spent a fair amount of their childhood with you know saturday morning cartoons were now of age and so they were already primed to love cartoons in a way that perhaps you know the 30 40 something set of of years uh, before weren't as as inclined to I think it just talks to so many different people in so many different ways. And I think it's also been very successful worldwide because it, although it, it, it's in, I think it's 60 or more countries, it's not a program that does what so many other American programs do, which is tell you why America is so, so fantastic and why everything in America is working perfectly. It makes fun of America. And so I think internationally, that's one of the reasons it's done well, too. Certainly, the audience research that I conducted, a lot of the non-Americans were saying that they loved how Homer was a sort of a parody of the modern American, and Springfield was a parody and a a satirical attack on small-town America. Uh, So it sort of opens itself up in so many different ways to so many different kinds of viewers. Marge, can't we get some clear plates? I can't see the TV. Are there groups of people who don't like The Simpsons because of the way that it makes fun of America? Well, that, I mean, that's what's interesting. I haven't heard of people who, who feel that uh, that they don't like The Simpsons be, because of that. I think in the early days, there were many people who felt that The Simpsons was a bad program because of BART. Certainly in its early days, it was marketed almost as the BART show. And BART, as this rude kid, disturbed a lot of Americans. The great commentary was from uh, George Bush Sr. and his wife who campaigned uh, around The Simpsons and talked about how we needed a nation closer to the Waltons than The Simpsons. And Bart was certainly at the the middle of this big moral panic about, you know, what was happening to the family and the nuclear family. And The Simpsons seemed to be ruining all that. Uh, The funny thing is, is 10 years on, there's so few nuclear families at the center of uh, TV shows sometimes that uh, The Simpsons is now sort of flipped and people now love it for being one of the last bastions of a sort of good old sitcom. 
And so whereas you had, you know, George Bush saying that he didn't like it 10 years or, you know, 15 years ago, you now have Tony Blair saying that he watches it all the time. You have the Archbishop of Canterbury giving it probably the best endorsement it's ever received, which is that it's on the side of the angels. Oh, my goodness. Kids, Homer, we're late for church. I'm glad I dressed last night. Oh, I'd love to go with you, honey, but I got a lot of work to do around the bed. Homer, the Lord only asks for an hour a week. In that case, you should have made the week an hour longer. Lousy God. I think whenever it does criticize, it criticizes in a playful way. So it's hard for people to get too offended by it. So I, I, I don't. I think that's why you don't find too many people worrying about its quote anti-Americanism. Partly because within the frame of America, people probably look at it and think, oh, you know, it's just making fun of Middle America. It's only outside of America that people see it as making fun of all of America. There's one aspect of the people in Springfield that I've always found to be sort of interesting, which is that they riot at the drop of a hat. Yeah. <laughs> Won't somebody think of the children? Uh, yeah, no, the, the the Springfieldians are a wonderful lot. Uh, and certainly that's why that's where we get some of the, the parody of uh, sort of a small town of America. Oh, there's no justice like angry mob justice. I'm going to burn all the historic memorabilia. I'm going to take me home a toilet. They will be led into almost anything. And, and Homer, of course, is their sort of moral leader. And quite often he's at the front of the riot. Uh, and yet, What's so interesting is that as much as we could see it as sort of parody or, or making fun of, it, it's hard not to smile when you talk of the Springfieldians and it's hard not to love this community. Uh, so uh, that's why I would never call it anti-American, for instance, because I, I think it's done so lovingly that really what it's it's saying is it's a sort of gentle nudge towards a different uh, version and, and vision of America. Getting back to the book itself, I wonder when you were writing it, what kind of research did you do? What what did you spend your time doing when you were writing this book? <laughs> yeah, no, that's the, the classic. Whenever people know that I wrote a, a book on The Simpsons, the first uh, comment is that, wow, the research must have been really hard for that. Certainly, I, I in my, my small student PhD accommodations, uh, spent a lot of time watching The Simpsons and uh, sitting down and rewinding and writing things out. Certainly, I wish I could have conducted the research in a TiVo age. But I mean, you know, obviously, there were sort of three fronts of the research. One was reading a lot and, and trying to find things that would help me make sense of it uh, theoretically and, and, and making sense of comedy and parody and satire. The other level was just watching a lot and cataloging huge amounts uh, and writing down, you know, at what point this funny comment was said. Uh, and then I also conducted audience research where I talked to people about how they uh, interacted with The Simpsons, which was, I've done audience research projects with other people, but this was uh, by far the most sort of rewarding and fun. So often it was very easy for us all to forget that there was a microphone in the room and it was actually quite often friend building. You know, the people who I would interview after 45 minutes of talking about The Simpsons uh, would leave the room as though we were best friends. <laughs> no, I actually thought of when I was looking at your book that um, I'm sure this is true of bars all over the country, but when I used to live in Chicago, the bar in my corner, every night at 5.30, they would play The Simpsons, which was airing on the local Fox affiliate at that time. 
and you know, it was the same crowd of people every night. You know, it was one of the few things that I've seen that people would gather together to watch, you know, a rerun of a sitcom. Yeah, no, it, it's um, it's amazing how it still gets that kind of audience. Um, and especially I, I found in, in multiple countries, too, like one of the people I interviewed for the book was someone else put me onto them and they said, you must talk to this woman because her house was the place to watch The Simpsons during college. And apparently 30 or 40 people would turn up and standing room on, only to watch The Simpsons. It's It's got this incredible power. Certainly, too, in my own experiences, backpacking around Europe, um, it's the, the common cultural currency that everyone has. You can talk about The Simpsons. Uh, you know, if the world had a, a common currency, Homer's head would be on that coin. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking this morning with Jonathan Gray. He's an assistant professor of communication and media studies at Fordham, and he is the author of the book Watching with the Simpsons, which is out now from Rutledge Press. Family, religion, friendship. These are the three demons you must slay if you wish to succeed in business. When opportunity knocks, you don't want to be driving to the maternity hospital or sitting in some phony baloney church or synagogue. Questions? Now, The Simpsons might be all about satirizing commercial culture, but that hasn't stopped them from taking a piece of the pie. In fact, you can buy a really kind of alarming array of Simpsons products, from car air fresheners to T-shirts to the Chia Homer. And, of course, Bart has been the spokesman for Butterfinger for years. I asked Jonathan Gray how we could reconcile the Simpsons' seemingly anti-corporate stance with the huge array of Simpsons and Simpsons-endorsed products. Uh, well, I mean, the Simpsons is this this oddity in that they make fun of sort of rampant consumerism and corporate malfeasance and this sort of out-of-control situation of uh, advertising ruling so many different public spaces and being present almost everywhere in American society, inescapable. And so in, in doing that, they are one of the only programs that will quite often lodge that complaint. At the same time, they are probably the most guilty. <laughs> there is no program on television that has its characters on in more advertising campaigns, partly because they're animated, you can use them elsewhere. But even then, you know, when was the last time you saw, you know, a family guy product as to the same degree as a Simpsons products? The Simpsons, actually, one of the reasons they got on air was because there was an established deal to have Bart as a spokesperson for Butterfinger. News Corp and, and Fox wouldn't have gone for the deal of giving the Simpsons their own show unless that was there. So you have these two things that, uh, on the face of it, make the Simpsons a complete hypocrite. And um, in some senses, they are a complete hypocrite. And they're actually odd in gleefully proclaiming their hypocrisy. There have been episodes, for instance, where there's one where Bart gets famous and his face gets put on all sorts of products and it gives rise to lots of comments from the family about how awful it is that Bart's face is everywhere and it's on T-shirts and it's on the Thanksgiving Day parade and, and so forth. So they embrace that. Now, that may lead some people to say, well, then the value of their critique is completely undercut. I'm more inclined, I think, to see it in the degree of, yes, they're hypocrites, but what does it actually do? It's for the same reason that, you know, a corporation that on one hand does awful things to the environment and then on the other hand uh, donates 
you know, money towards environmental programs. It can be accused of hypocrisy. However, if you are the person working for that environmental program that's been given that money, uh, that is something that you are working with. That's very real. It's tangible. It's there. And I think this similar things happen with The Simpsons, that on one hand, yes, it's economically complicit. It does all of these things that it says um, that the media sphere shouldn't. And yet, on the other hand, it gives us some of the only uh, language on television with which we can criticize that act. I think, though, that there is a little bit of a difference between the way that The Simpsons does it and the way that other TV shows might do it. And I thought of this when I was I was looking at your book while I was watching um, The Office mm-hmm. on NBC. And it's an episode that involves one of the characters really loving his shredder that he got from Staples. And as I'm watching this, I'm thinking, this is really weird. You know, why does he keep talking about this shredder? And then it comes out of the show, and it's an ad for that shredder. Mm-hmm. And then the next show that came on was... Uh, the new one with Tina Fey, 30 Rock. 30 Rock. And that show was all about how they didn't want to do product placement. I was thinking as I was watching that that this would not have been possible without The Simpsons, this sort of level of irony and weirdness. I felt like it's sort of The Simpsons made it possible. Yeah, no, I mean, that that's certainly true. As you said, 30 Rock is an example where the Alec Baldwin character is famous and, and well-loved within the GE family because of his work marketing this certain brand of uh, oven and uh, the oven is something that you can purchase in the real life and uh, so as as much as they make jokes about it it is a walking a talking advertisement and certainly the simpsons perhaps gave birth to that one of the big differences is that at least within the simpsons as a program there is very little product placement of real items laramie cigarettes duff beer lard lad donuts uh, these aren't real brands Uh, So it's actually quite rare that we see real brands uh, dragged in. So as opposed to the sort of the famous moment in the the Wayne's World movie where they're making fun of product placement and as they're pulling out, you know, their Domino's pizza box and their Pepsi can and and so forth, uh, there they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. At least within the realm of The Simpsons, uh, most often when they make fun of a, a product, they don't give a shout out to a real life product. It's just Delarami cigarettes, which unfortunately you cannot go and buy. I don't know why you would want to buy. Uh, Duff Beer, incidentally, was a uh, a beer in Australia. It was a small family um, name, and they had to change their name to McDuff um, because of an arrangement where uh, Fox talked with them about possibly changing their name, and, and uh, Fox offered to give uh, completely new labels to them and so forth. And, and so uh, once upon a time, Duff Beer you could buy, but it wasn't the Duff Beer of The Simpsons. You look at The Simpsons and there's so many elements of it. There's so many layers. Did they introduce something new? Did they make watching a sitcom a more complicated thing? Yeah, I think that that's very true. They, in in many ways, have layered uh, different types of of humor, partly because of what parody is, is that parody, parody works and it's about not just the moment at which you're watching the program that is the parody, uh, the point with parody is that it's it's humor that's meant to sort of have legs, that it's meant to walk away with you. When The Simpsons, for instance, make fun of the sitcom world and how everything always works out and everyone always loves each other, that's then a sort of model that you can carry with you. And the next time you're watching Full House, you may be watching with The Simpsons. That The Simpsons work as a sort of ghost that float over the Olsen twins and Bob Saget and 
all of a sudden you can be using them to make fun of and to laugh at moments in Full House which uh, weren't meant to be funny or that the studio audience think are funny for a very different reason. Um, now, The Simpsons certainly didn't invent that. Parody is that age-old technique. We find it going all the way back to Greek drama, uh, at least in Western culture. I'm sure in other cultures it goes back a long time, too. But in, in modern-day television, The Simpsons certainly created room for all sorts of other programs to uh, to follow the lead. And it allowed a form of, I guess, DIY humor, whereby you can now, you know, sometimes The Simpsons will mock advertising in a way that sort of poisons the next ad uh, that comes on after the ad break. There was one episode, for instance, that's a Halloween episode where all of the... Um, advertising slogans and mascots in the town go crazy and start rampaging and destroying all the public space. When the episode's finally over, Kent Brockman, the newsman, addresses the camera saying, you know, watch out because the next advertisement you see may eat your family and destroy your neighborhood. And then we cut to a commercial. So, you know, there there are points where there's the DIY humor, where you take The Simpsons with you to make uh, make sense of and, and laugh at other things that are going on. It just seems like it's so of our time. Definitely. I mean, I think it is the, I, this was the other reason I wanted to write the book, because I feel it is the iconic text of at least the 90s. People would probably say that The Daily Show is the iconic text of right now, but I, I think The Daily Show learned a lot of what it got from The Simpsons. America! Take a good look at your beloved candidates. They're nothing but hideous space reptiles. It's true. We are aliens. But what are you going to do about it? It's a two-party system. You have to vote for one of us. He's right. This is a two-party system. Well, I believe I'll vote for a third-party candidate. Go ahead. Throw your vote away! (laughs) You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just ahead this morning, it's Cityscape. That's Cityscape with George Bodarkey this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. We're talking today on Fordham Conversations about The Simpsons. My guest is Jonathan Gray. His new book is Watching with the Simpsons, Television, Parody, and Intertextuality. It's out now from Rutledge Press. Gray is an assistant professor of communication and media studies at Fordham. I asked him what it was like writing academic stuff about something that's so not academic. Yeah, well, I mean, well, part of it's actually made easy, I think, by the level of intelligence of the humor in The Simpsons. I've written about other more banal texts that perhaps aren't as smart, and you then have to change the language because you have to take something that's phrased in a very sort of regular language and you have to try and, you know, find find a way to translate it into the, the sort of requirements of academic speak. The Simpsons almost do a lot of the work for you. So I actually think that uh, it's it wasn't that hard. What would be ideal is to have a CD-ROM that I can include with the book with clips because sometimes you're forced to describe humorous situations and scenes. For instance, one of the things I couldn't talk about as much in the book is some of the play that they do with um, music, partly because it's it's harder to talk about the music when it's not lyrical. So sometimes there are these, these sort of strange disjunct moments where you're trying to convert what's visual into uh, into words. But as far as the uh, the level of intellect, I found it remarkably easy that The Simpsons quite often does it for me. 
Now, obviously, The Simpsons has permeated our culture in a pretty big way. I was surprised to see in your book that Doe was even in the Oxford English Dictionary. It certainly is. Tell me more about why you think that has happened. Again, part of it is because it's done so well internationally. Part of the international success also has to do with the fact that it's a cartoon, and so it can be easily dubbed. You don't have to sort of have the growing pains of having, you know, Jennifer Aniston speaking with uh, someone who's clearly not Jennifer Aniston voicing her in, in some other language. You can make it uh, work. Indeed, I'm told by viewers from other countries uh, in which it plays in other languages that The Simpsons actually caters its script somewhat to local context so that sometimes the jokes that are made are ones that, uh, for instance, jokes in the, the Mexican version would be ones that non-Mexican viewers wouldn't get because they're local to the context. Um, so I think that's part of uh, why it's it's known, because it's had such international currency. I think there's also just the sort of comic mastery of, of and, and comic genius of, of Homer as the sort of everyman who is at one and the same time spokesperson for so many feelings and, and strange uh, desires that people have, um, and yet the perfect example of the consumer gone wrong, of the person who's been lost in the system, who must buy everything that he sees on TV, uh, who listens to everything that he's told, who clearly didn't listen to anything in school, couldn't tell you how many states there are. And, and so there's something about the, the comic potential of that character. Um, I will ask you one more question, and I'll close with this. What is your favorite Simpsons episode and why? Hmm. Ooh. That's one that will change on almost any day of the week. That said, more days than not, I would probably say an episode called um, Much Apu About Nothing, uh, which is an episode in which Apu, the Quickie Mart owner, it looks like he's going to be kicked out of the country. And the episode starts with this bear problem that Springfield is facing. So they have to institute a bear tax. People get angry about the bear tax. And so as a result, they complain and the mayor uh, spuriously claims that the bear tax uh, that it has nothing to do with the bear tax, but in fact taxes are higher because of illegal immigrants. And that gives rise to a great riot and uh, sense of anger amongst the, the citizens of Springfield that why do we have illegal immigrants? And they give birth to a proposition that would uh, deport all illegal immigrants. And it's a wonderful episode of satire because it, it plays with you know, a proposition that was actual in California, uh, and it looks at some of the sort of xenophobia that can sweep up the nation. There are some wonderful lines in it. Homer, goes, of course, gets involved with this and goes around plastering posters that uh, have Uncle Sam uh, saying, I want you out. Uh, when Chief uh, Wiggum rounds up the Ill illegal immigrants down at the port, it's with the uh, list that, uh, okay, here's the list of deportations. First, we'll have your tired, then your you know, huddled masses yearning to breathe free. And in the recontextualization of the uh, Statue of Liberty's promise, uh, I think it, it ends up with a wonderful commentary on um, the promise of America and how some of the xenophobia works against that promise. And and so rather than just being a small joke or a series of jokes, it's an episode that really comes together around a, a single issue and, and, and quite an important issue and it, um, does so in such a, a playful way. And it has us on the side of Apu and the illegal immigrants right from the beginning because Apu is such a loved character. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a wonderfully rich example of, of satire. 
I believe that's also the episode where Homer leads the march down the street saying, we're here, we're queer, we don't want any more bears, which I've always liked. (laughs) That would be Homer. (laughs) Well, Jonathan Gray, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you very much. That was Jonathan Gray. He's an assistant professor of communication and media studies at Fordham, and his new book is Watching with the Simpsons, Television, Parody, and Intertextuality. It's out now from Rutledge Press. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. Up next, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. I'm Nora Flaherty. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend. We could tear this house down. (laughs) No! My friend, stop! Let me finish. We could tear it down, but we'd be tearing down a part of ourselves. You could close down Moe's or the Quickie Mart. And nobody would care But the heart and soul of Springfield's in Our maison derriere We're the sauce on your steak We're the cheese in your cake We put the spring in Springfield We're the lace on the night Point after touchdown. Yes, we put the spring in Springfield. We're that little extra spice that makes existence extra nice. A giddy little thrill at a reasonable price. Our only major quarrels with your total lack of morals. Our skimpy costumes ain't so bad. They seem to entertain you, Dad. That service was exquisite. Why, Joseph, I had no idea. Come on now, you were working here. Without it, we'd have had no fun since March of 1961. To shut them down now would be twisted. We just heard this place existed. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.